Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz. It is really great to have you here today. We have such an incredible guest. We are speaking today with Alan Snyder. Alan Snyder is the director of Impact at Prime Store Development. Prime Store is a development firm heavily focused on socially conscious urban real estate. I'm so excited to bring this conversation to y'all that I had with Alan because I felt like I learned so, so much. Alon speaks with us today about what it means to ethically support a community in its urban revitalization. So we're specifically speaking today about the city of Los Angeles, or I should say Los Angeles County. This is where Prime Store is primarily focused. This is where Alon has grown up and where he is most keenly focused on in his career. And a lot of the very specific case studies or cities or examples that we give in the context of Los Angeles can be used as examples when you're thinking about your own city or when you're thinking about other cities that you may be aware of going through similar things. So I think Los Angeles is a perfect melting pot for different kinds of revitalization to occur that Alon talks us through today. So even if you yourself are not living in Los Angeles County, there is so, so much to learn from a lot of the opportunities and the challenges and the lessons learned over time within this space. We talk, of course, about environmental racism. We talk very much about transportation. We talk about redlining. This was really a value-packed conversation. I know you will learn a lot from it. I am truly so thankful to have had the opportunity to sit down with Alon and learn a little bit more about his area of expertise. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. I will have lots of links in the show notes to articles if you'd like to read a little bit more about some of the examples we discuss in today's episode. And I look forward to hearing what you think about it. If you want to see little video clips, I've been sharing a lot of those on social media. You can find all of my social links down in the show notes. I am at Podcast. And I hope that you are subscribed to the show. If this is your first time tuning in, it's so great to have you. Make sure that you are subscribed so you never miss an episode. And even if you've been here before, just go ahead and double check. iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, wherever you want to listen. I'm really excited to continue having these conversations on the show. Really value-packed guests, really fun sit-down conversations, spaces where we can be really honest and open and then also still learn a lot. I feel like the last few months of EcoChic have been so great, and I really am looking forward to the next few months. And with that, I know that you're really going to enjoy this episode. 
So I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Alon Snyder, all about urban revitalization in the city of Los Angeles. Enjoy. I'm excited to talk to you about sustainable development because it feels like something that is both a very hot topic and a very out of touch idea for a lot of people. It's something that we talk about a lot in sustainability, but it's not something that a lot of people deeply understand Mm -hmm. because we live in these urban environments that are very hard to reimagine. So I'd love to first set the scene and talk about how you got into sustainable development and the role that you're in now. Yeah, that's a perfect place to start. When I was around 16 years old, decided that I was going to dedicate my life to, or my career at least, and inherently my life, to working in sustainability. Very broad, very general, but that's what I wanted to do. You know, I figured I will let life unfold and see where that leads me in my career, but that's my North Star. I got to college, I was looking for an internship, I landed at a real estate firm, and I started learning a lot about real estate, and I liked it. And I have a family background in it. And I kind of stuck with that professionally through college, but kept studying environmental courses. And that ultimately led to the exploration of green real estate and sustainable design. And that was a big passion of mine. First job out of college was really just how can I learn more about the real estate industry and hone my skills in real estate and ultimately end up in sustainable real estate development, which wasn't very much a big market back then. It's still not necessarily a very big market. It it is much more well-known now, but still not, you know, as big as it should be. So long story short, that's really how I ended up where I am now doing that. Did you grow up in Los Angeles? Born and raised in Los Angeles. I'm a first generation American. My family's from Mexico. So, but yeah, born and raised here, went to undergrad here. Only in the last year and a half that I've been living in New York have I really left L.A. Because a lot of your work now does focus on the city of Los Angeles. All of it. All of it. All of it. You know, we're, we're looking to expand and develop elsewhere in California and hopefully nationally at some point. But right now, everything is in Los Angeles County. I feel like Los Angeles is a really interesting example of sustainable development. And I'm sure you could speak to this much better than I ever could because I did not grow up here. But the city of Los Angeles is a very, very large collection of suburbs. And it's very interesting how culturally diverse each of these pockets seems to be, uh, the environmental issues that are experienced by each of these pockets of Los Angeles, and the wealth discrepancy in the city is unbelievable. So I'd love to talk a little bit about the city of LA, and I don't want to talk about the issues necessarily, but what are some of the opportunities we have when it comes to developing a city that is already quite well-established and clearly has a lot that could be improved upon. Yeah. I love Los Angeles. It has my heart. I'm coming back full-time this summer, and I'm very excited about that. I love developing in Los Angeles. I grew up in a very different Los Angeles than what I work in now. You know, in full transparency, I grew up with a well-off family, very privileged. I never had to worry you know, fortunately about food on the table or shelter or anything like that. And I never saw what I think is really the real LA, the heart of LA. When people think and talk about, you know, Hispanic presence in LA, now we have 50% of the population that's Hispanic or white Hispanic, Latino. Until I started working where I work now at Prime Store, I didn't see the urban heart of Los Angeles. And I think most people 
that are visiting Los Angeles don't see that either because these are communities that don't have, let's call it touristic attractions. They have rich history and rich culture within the communities, but it's not Hollywood. It's not Santa Monica. It's not Beverly Hills. And the development of that is, you know, was dictated 80 years ago. And it's not a story that's unlike that of a lot of other cities in the country. But what makes Los Angeles a really interesting case study is how transportation, when people talk about New York versus L.A., which I hear right now all the time living in New York, <laughs> you know, one of the biggest things is, well, you know, L.A., you need a car to get everywhere. It takes an hour to get anywhere. And... That transportation infrastructure is, is real, or the lack of it is real. And it plays a huge part in the development of equity in the city. So, you know, just setting the scene for the opportunities there. I think the biggest opportunity is going to come in the next 10, 15 years as LA is seeing a massive expansion of its public transportation system, particularly in the next five years ahead of the 2028 Olympics. This is so interesting to me. I feel like I hear a lot about the Olympics as this incredible moment for Los Angeles to develop. You hear about it a lot, even with the airports, that they're doing so much improvement to the airports, like in preparation for the Olympics. And then the comparison to New York, I think is always really interesting because when I think of New York and when I think of the subway system, I always think like, wow, this could never work anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Because in my head, the city had to be developed beyond the subway. But in fact, it could work in a lot of other places. And in fact, a lot of other cities could invest in something similar. So I feel like from a city planning perspective, there's also this interest in understanding why citizens don't currently use the public transportation that is available. So if a city already has a bus system or some sort of very simplistic metro system, why aren't we using it? And sometimes it's a safety issue. Sometimes it's an accessibility issue. There could certainly be a cost component. So I feel like a lot of the challenges that come with public transportation are multifaceted. It's not just about the transportation. It's about the communities that it's aiming to serve. A hundred percent. When you say we don't really use transportation, who's the we that we're talking about, right? It's the people that can afford not to use the public transportation. And you can't talk transportation without talking about the underlying infrastructure. It was the development of highways in the 40s and 50s, particularly in Los Angeles, that not only segregated already divided communities and almost landlocked them into where they are now, but also was only developed about 60% of the original planned amount of mileage of infrastructure. So nimbyism, right? That's a big thing. It's a real thing, not in my backyard. And that's, that was an effect in the development of the highways. So you don't see highways tearing through Beverly Hills, Brentwood, Santa Monica. You have the 405 passing kind of between Brentwood and Westwood, but not through the middle of it. So you're developing a traffic density around lower income minority communities. That's two and a half times the traffic density of more affluent areas. When we talk about Manhattan, something that we need to think about in context too is, and I say Manhattan specifically, not New York, is scale, right? You know, if you're in the middle of Manhattan, 
the radius, it's two miles wide. When you think about Los Angeles, and when we say Los Angeles, we're really talking about Los Angeles County because the different cities, Beverly Hills, its own city, Culver City, Santa Monica, but Los Angeles County, the whole picture. I mean, that is an enormous area. And if you go outside of Manhattan, there's still very good public transportation infrastructure. But I was just doing a, a project, a consulting project for a nonprofit called Marine Park Alliance, which serves a park in South Brooklyn. That's an 800-acre park. Beautiful park, huge natural ecosystem service area, and lots of amenities there. But it's all the way in South Brooklyn. Even if you take the existing subway as far as you can, it's still a 30-minute walk from there to the park. So the further you get from Manhattan, outside of a two-mile radius, which is the major concentration of that subway system, the less that infrastructure becomes available. There's a correlation to demographics there too. So, you know, in LA, we're thinking about ridership. I bet you there's a whole lot of people riding the bus all the time. When you say the we that aren't riding the bus, yes, there are concerns about safety, for sure. But the affordability and accessibility is a big component that makes up you know, who really is making use of that system. I was thinking about myself, selfishly. I live in the city of Denver, and we do have some public transportation that is available to me. I'm thinking specifically there's a train line that goes to the airport, and I really like to take the train to the airport because it saves me on the stress of having to park at the airport, of just dealing with having to get there. So for me, it is the more attractive option to opt for the train in the city of Denver. However, it doesn't occur to me to use the train to get to other places in the city because I live in a walkable area. So there's this incredible privilege, too, of being able to get to places on foot and not really having to rely on a car day to day. And you have that in Manhattan as well. So the subway system and the walkability of the city has really led to a lot of communities being incredibly I guess like hyper hyper local, right? There's a lot of businesses that really rely on that walkability depending on where you are in the city. So when you think about the city of Los Angeles, and again, we're thinking about a community of suburbs, that walkability is inherently diminished by that like continued lack of public infrastructure when it comes to transportation. So it's this really awful positive feedback loop of just continuing to allow people to be separated and really pushing people further and further apart or further within their own communities or even like further out of touch with other people in the city. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think therein lies the opportunity and the expansion that's going to happen over the next 5, 10, 20, 30 years. I do think that there is concern from the communities in Los Angeles that have historically not lived with public transportation access to their communities, right? So I don't think that concern is invalid. You know, nimbyism needs to be checked, but the city also needs to understand the current status of safety and health of public transportation. And as you expand that, if you're not planning carefully for that, what does that do? Who are you moving around the city and where? And right now, you know, there's a lot of concern about that. LA has seen crime rise a lot and violent crime rise a lot in the in the aftermath of COVID and in the last few years. And that's a factor of 
you know, the impacts that COVID had. It's also a factor of political changes that are happening. Quick break to tell you about Green Chef. Green Chef is the most delicious, the most versatile, the most customizable, the easiest to prep, the most sustainable meal kit on the market. It is a truly fabulous addition to your home routine. I just mentioned how customizable Green Chef is. They have options for every single lifestyle, keto, protein-packed, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, gluten-free. I get the Mediterranean. You even have the option to mix and match meals from different dietary preferences within the same box without even changing your plan. There's over 50 weekly menu and market items to choose from. Green Chef is also the only meal kit that's both carbon and plastic offset. They offset 100% of their delivery emissions to your door, as well as 100% of the plastic in every single box. And nearly all the packaging materials are curbside recyclable in most areas of the U.S. With Green Chef, you're reducing your waste by up to 23% versus traditional grocery shopping. I've spoken before how much I love Green Chef for the actual experience of cooking a meal at home, whether you're with a friend or alone or with your partner. Just having a really delicious home-cooked meal on a weeknight is a fun activity. And then, of course, it's a super healthy, super delicious meal afterwards, especially now that it's getting warmer. I want to sit on the porch. I want to listen to some James Taylor radio in the background. It's just a great time to make a Green Chef meal. I also have been traveling a lot, a lot. So it's great to have a Green Chef meal when I get home because I don't have to go to the grocery store. I don't have to think about what meals I'm gonna come up with with whatever's left over in my pantry. I can choose my meals ahead of time and I know I'm gonna have something fresh and healthy and delicious waiting for me when I get home. And I feel like I have really elevated my cooking. Like I've really learned how to cook by creating Green Chef meals because there's a lot of things that I wouldn't normally think of as a home cook, like adding garnishes or making different sauces or the pairings of different protein options and vegetable options. It's really so great in the moment and then you realize that you're becoming well-versed in the kitchen because of these delicious meals that you're creating through Green Chef. So I know you've been thinking about it. This is the time to check it out. Go to greenchef.com slash ecochic60 and use code ecochic60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. Again, that's greenchef.com slash ecochic60 and use code ecochic60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. I absolutely love it. I know that you're going to love it. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well. I will have it linked in the show notes. Now back to the show. Let's talk a little bit about redlining. I am so excited to talk to you about this because I know that redlining, while it is incredibly problematic across the country, has a really interesting background and history in the city of Los Angeles specifically. So can we talk a little bit about historically how communities have been designated value, I suppose, in the city of Los Angeles? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think redlining is a term that most people are familiar with. I don't know that everyone understands its real history and its real impacts because as far as we know, you know, or we understand redlining doesn't exist anymore. Let's define redlining. If someone has never heard of it before in very simple terms. Yeah. Redlining was a program in the late 1930s done by the U.S. government through a different agency to identify and rate neighborhoods on likelihood of defaulting on mortgage loans. It came out of FDR's New Deal to encourage homeownership as, and facilitate homeownership as a foundation of wealth to generate wealth in the economy. So that's what redlining literally was. 
And it's called redlining because it was quite literally like red lines on a map. Yes, maps were developed for most major cities. I think over 200 maps were developed and they were rated on ABCD and D-rated neighborhoods were red shaded on the map. Exactly. Okay, great. Thank you so much for explaining that. And then in the context of the city of Los Angeles, we've talked a little bit about how highways were designated and where the highways were ultimately built. But how is redlining still incredibly problematic in the city? Yeah, I mean, for all intents and purposes, without the literal technical government supporting of a redlining policy, you see it in 80 years of inability of generational wealth building and financial exclusion. So even before redlining happened in the 30s, in the early 1900s, Los Angeles and many other places in the country, but very much so Los Angeles had racially restrictive land covenants. So homeowners or property owners in the deeds could not sell to certain groups of people. So you already had segregation based on those covenants. Redlining further impacted segregation through that process as well. An inability to secure homes and financing for home purchasing, you had a lack of wealth. And then as that gap grew over time, you had less investment going into those communities, not only investment in terms of economic activity, but infrastructure. Now you have compounding effects over time of deteriorating infrastructure, which makes you know certain neighborhoods uglier, lack of green space, physical blight, and then land use associated with that. So designating land in those C and D rated yellow and red shaded communities for undesirable land uses, incinerators, landfills, toxic plants, right? I mean, Cancer Alley in Louisiana is super famous. And you still see a lot of that today, but over 80 years of development and economic growth, only certain parts of the city really grew economically and only became more unaffordable. So even though redlining doesn't exist today, securing financing is still harder based on credit scores. You know, your income and employment availability is a massive discrepancy in certain parts of the city. Your ability to own a car and get around because of the lack of public transportation limits your pool of employment. The values of your property fund your education, your public education. So you can't even get the skills necessary to find better employment and increase your income. So it's all tied together. And I'm not saying everything is traced back to redlining, but it's it impacts a lot of those factors. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like especially when we discuss environmental racism, very often people have this picture of communities immediately around a landfill or an incinerator or something really obviously bad for your health. But when we talk about environmental racism, there's this whole other level of, I mean, redlining is one intersection of how these problems are continually impacting a community. But when we talk about even access to green space or food deserts, for example, all of these are adjacent issues that just continue to really perpetuate a community in a really negative way. So I feel like then the obvious question here is what is the solution? So we have all of these communities that historically have been 
oppressed that historically have heavily been impacted by really awful government policies and just these compounding issues over time. But how can you really intervene at this point? So it's been going on for so long. What do we do? Yeah, that's the million dollar question. <laughs> that's a hard one. Right? So I'm sorry to throw it at you. <laughs> no, no, I'm happy to take a stab at it. And and I think, you know, that's that's what I do in my job. Yeah. I'm the director of impact for Prime Store, which is an urban infill developer that focuses on low-income minority communities, which have been historically marginalized. And in developing in those communities, we're really tackling social and environmental justice issues. We have to. And for starters, our focus on how to combat that is really developing local economies. So we're focusing a lot on local hiring initiatives from the development and construction process to the leases we have with our tenants and hiring on the operational side. The vendors that service our properties, we're often looking to hire local vendors and support their business and help them get it off the ground. We are reserving space in our properties for local business incubation to support local entrepreneurs and potentially even help them expand their operations providing and facilitating financial support for that, financial literacy. We work a lot with a lot of local stakeholder groups and nonprofits. A uh, big one that we work with is Think Watts in Watts, California. You know, they're all about financial literacy for their community. And so creating programs around that. And, you know, when we're looking to develop a new site, a lot of the time it's, we're only redeveloping. We're never taking down greenfields. We're looking at either previously developed sites or brownfield remediation. A lot of these sites were previously industrial sites. So we're actually cleaning up the hazardous waste and chemicals that made its way into the soil and polluted the community. We're thinking about water infrastructure and water quality, air quality. That's the development approach. I think on a more macro scale, it's really awareness, I think is a really big thing. I never would have known any of this about Los Angeles, if not for two things, if not for beginning to work at Prime Store, but then also personally choosing to follow this career path and pursue it academically, right? I, I didn't grow up there. I can't empathize. I can sympathize. And I now understand why this has happened. But if we're not talking about just on a fundamental human level, what this inequity means and trying to have people understand how policy affects equity and how a lack of equity is actually a drag on society, then we're not really going to make any strides because people are always going to resist. And there's always going to be pushback. And we need voices on all sides. But at one point, are you pushing back just to push back and what's the cost if you're wrong of not doing anything. Wow. That's really powerful. <laughs> That's really powerful. So I want to ask really on a day-to-day -day tactical scale, how do you go into a community and support redevelopment? So you as a business, as an individual, as any sort of representative of an entity, are you quite literally going into a community and asking, like, who are the entrepreneurs here that I can help out? Or is someone coming to you and saying, my neighborhood needs support. I want to revitalize the area I grew up in. It's a combination of both. With our track record, 30 years of doing this, we do have a lot of municipalities that approach us 
you know, through an RFP request or proposal process, you know, they're saying, hey, we need economic development in our community. We know that you know how to do this, that you're the experts in this. And when we go into a project and into a community, we let the community tell us what they need. We don't come in with a design. We don't come in with an idea that comes out of conversations with the community. This question is great timing. Literally last night, I was out in, in the valley and I was doing a community stakeholder meeting for sustainability for a development that we're looking to do out in the valley. And we don't have a design for that development. We have an idea at this point because we've had dozens now of community meetings of what we can do with the site and how to maximize the site to improve the quality of life and generate the best economic value for the surrounding community. But, you know, we had community members come out and just ask us, hey, you know, this, this could be a botanical garden. Why are we putting buildings here? Uh, you know, we don't have green space. No one ever thinks about our green space here. So it was a very collaborative, open, transparent, and humble conversation, right? Sure, I might be the sustainability professional and expert, but I'm not the expert of that community. I'm not from there. I don't know the history and the traumas of that community. So we really need to be humble when we're working on these and integrate the community in the process as much as we can. When we name our properties, the community names the property. When we brand the properties, the community has a say in the branding of the property. A lot of the questions last night were about the cultural history of that community and how the project should reflect that and have pride in that. And that's all at the essence of our process. This is so interesting to me how aware you have to be going into this because I feel like it's a very slippery slope where you can very easily fall into a space of saviorism. Going into a community and you've done this for so many years and the company has been in business for so many years and it's so easy to go in and just kind of have some sort of one-size-fits-all model that you might tailor in some way. But it's very humble and very aware to go into a community knowing that you do not have all the answers. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, that saviorism is is a big topic, right? You know, when we talk about gentrification, urban renewal, in theory, those should be good things. They have become synonymous with displacement and racism and rising costs. And because you have developers that are coming into communities seeing an opportunity to maximize profit. You know, this is a capitalist society. We are a for-profit company, but we found a model that works with community stakeholders and leaders and groups and also government agencies where we can develop these public-private partnership models that really practice more of a stakeholder capitalism where everyone's in it together and nobody is succeeding at the cost of anybody else. This is so interesting to me. Well, I told you very briefly, once upon a time, I worked at a county planning department. Working at a county planning department was a fascinating crash course in community engagement for me because there are so many people that will reach out to the local government with something like 
we're, we're really going to need to ban leaf blowers. And I'm like, I have no power to do that. Like, I'm not shutting down every every lawn company in this county, right? But then sometimes it's like really helpful suggestions that are actionable. And so when you think about community engagement events, there's also this divide of sorting out the voices in the room. Is it just the loudest people that are being listened to? How are you really bringing in these marginalized communities and really making sure that the community is represented in a lot of these discussions? So sometimes it means having engagement events that are quite literally like at a city hall. And then sometimes it's reaching out to a local PTA board because maybe there's going to be a playground in the area or something along those lines. So I'd love to talk a little bit about community engagement. How does that work in a very practical way for you when we think about revitalization? Yeah, I think, you know, the different types that you touched on are exactly right. And let me start by saying I'm not the one that does the community engagement for the company. I participate as I need to, but it's absolutely at the core of what we do. And it is multifaceted in that approach. During COVID, we didn't stop our community engagement. We shifted to Zoom. So if we're going to be doing Zoom, how do we make sure in these communities that are often less trained in technology understand and are educated enough to be able to get online and communicate with us? Last night, it was, you know, a small group of people who in the community said, when you open uh, the public comment window for our environmental impact report for this project. And how can you get that word out better? Because it's such a bureaucratic process. It's really complicated. And if you haven't dug your, you know, sunk your teeth into it before, you're not going to hear from the community. So it's, okay, what stakeholders in the community are the right ones to work with that their community trusts and knows? And there's focus groups that we run through and we work through focus groups. We last night was at a Goodwill, you know, the Goodwill, they help promote the community meeting. It was sometimes in city hall. So there's definitely different sizes, formats and topics where you have to tailor it to specific groups of people. And sometimes it's just email surveys or here's a gift card if you, you know, someone will win this gift card. There's so many different ways of engagement on a local, city, online, in-person format. But you need to make the effort. You need to let the community teach you about who those people are, right? It's not as easy as saying, oh, there's a church in the community. This is a big school in the community. And this is the elected official in the community. And those are the three. You can start there, but follow that thread and see where it takes you. Because in South LA, there's a, there's a group called Eastside Riders, and it's a bike program for kids after school to you know be able to watch over them and make sure that they don't get involved in anything that they shouldn't. That's a big player there. I don't know that someone that is not from that community would necessarily have heard about them. Interesting. Is there one thing that you find is common or perhaps what do you think is the number one thing that you get told? Like my community needs X. Do you hear that very often? Is there one thing? I don't know that there's one thing we hear a lot. And like you said, there are the there's the equivalent of the leaf blower situation. And then there's the practical we need fresh produce and we need banks or we need medical resources. But one thing that I hear a lot, I heard it last night, 
I heard it months ago for a different project, is green space. People want access to nature. They want fresh air. They want to feel like they're not in an urban concrete jungle. It's hot in these communities. On average, urban infill communities are, I think, five to seven degrees Fahrenheit hotter than affluent communities that are less dense. Uh, that's a factor of density of development, but very much a factor of lack of green and open space. Wow. That's interesting to me because we spoke a little bit about food deserts. And then very often, a lot of these communities are tied to um, health risks that are associated with lack of healthy, fresh food. You think about access to exercising. We talked about walkability. And then leading that all back to green space, I think, is so interesting to me because when I think about green space, especially intersecting with BIPOC communities, very often these marginalized communities have been discouraged from participating in any sort of nature-based activities. There's a lot of really great nonprofits now around getting BIPOC communities into hiking or trying out new outdoor sports. When we talk about uh, swimming programs for adults in communities that may have not historically had access to those types of programs. It's really interesting to focus on green space as something that can be democratized because it not only makes the community feel more connected to the physical land, but it's also so clearly tied to individual self-improvement. Yeah, absolutely. From a, you know, health, mental and physical health, it is so imperative and even, you know, the, the best argument is just that it is a massive economic toll based on everything that you just talked about to not invest in improving access to green and open space. When you think about the health impacts that it has, I read a study in New York uh, from the Trust for Public Land that is an economic study on what the impacts of a lack of access is. And it's in the billions, I believe. I don't want to misspeak here, but hundreds of millions to billions in terms of value lost to healthcare expenses, property values, uh, economic activity from, you know, just even sports leagues and things like that. So it's a massive economic loss to not have that. Interesting. You know, and yes, it ties into obesity levels. Look at death rates in from COVID, right? A big part of that had to do with a lack of access to open green space, air filtration. It takes a massive toll. I think it's one of the best opportunities for development. And when you're thinking about infrastructure to improve equity, you know, for whatever faults it might have, I was looking a lot into the LA River Master Plan. And I think that's such an, I mean, that's got to be one of the most amazing opportunities for LA County have done right uh, to address all of this. It's a 51 mile stretch of river that goes from the San Fernando Valley all the way to, you know, South LA. And I think really ultimately Long Beach, basically, if you follow it, you know, the types of communities that trace that river, there's a correlation between the channelization of the river, which, you know, it's, it's ugly. It's concrete. We did that in the thirties for flood control and the, property values and the types of people that live along there. Imagine if, you know, till you take the best parts of this plan and it's executed well and stakeholders are involved properly and 
you are able to, I don't like this word, but let's say beautify some of it. This is overly simplified, but you start increasing property values. Property values start increasing education. Education starts increasing certain skills. You start increasing access to employment, air quality, health improves overall, less cost burden on those communities. That that money that's not lost to health costs now can go elsewhere, investing into their own businesses, economic development, et cetera. It's such a cascading effect that green and open space can have. I'm so glad that you made it so simple to follow because I feel like when we talk about truly sustainable communities, these issues are brought up in this very simple way. It's like, oh, once we fix X, then we'll fix Y. But it is actually like a very clear flow of all of these issues and all of these solutions building upon themselves. So Theoretically. You, yeah, in theory, of course, <laughs> in this very, very simple example. So when you think about a truly sustainable community, what does that look like to you? Is it just quite simply having a community that is invested in one another from a social perspective? Or is it the shiny environmental programs we think of, like community solar fields and good recycling? When I think of that, what I think of primarily are the presence of social determinants of health. I can't remember all of them off the top of my head, but they have to do with economic opportunity, quality education, quality health care, green space and infrastructure, and social and community context. So I think a sustainable community is really a healthy community because to have a healthy community, you have to have the presence of opening green space. You have to have the presence of essential financial and healthcare resources and amenities. You know, you have to solve for food deserts. You have to have healthy food options. You are thinking about energy burden and equitable infrastructure in terms of housing and affordability. As those things become more present, I think you see a shift in community and social context. Safety improves, right? Crime probably goes down. And now you start having more trust between individuals, more interaction between individuals on a day-to-day -day basis. So that's really, to me, what that looks like. We can talk about what kind of design it looks like <laughs> and everything, but you know that that's in the eye of the beholder. Is that the term? I don't know. I always say I'm ESL, so I always mix up... Uh, English phrases and idioms. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like that. I like the beauty is in the eye of the beholder kind of example of sustainable communities because I feel like when I think of sustainable communities, I think of those really shiny environmental things like we talked about. But you don't really need the same sort of investment in those shiny environmental programs that you would need if you focus on the social issues first. So really thinking about what that community needs. We talked a little bit about transportation at the top of our conversation. And transportation is a massive infrastructure undertaking, of course, for that larger community. But what does that mean for the neighborhoods? And what does that mean for the quality of life of those individuals living in the pockets that that public transportation is serving, like you mentioned? So it's not that you can't have one without the other, but the environmental components of a truly sustainable community, in my eyes, should almost come second to those social components. Like if you're not really speaking to the people and looking at what they need, then how are you going to make any of those programs worthwhile for them? Right. That's not their priority. Their priority is I need to put food on the table. 
I need to stay warm or cool off. Tying it back to what you said, sustainable development feels like an oxymoron. Last night, somebody at the community meeting, you know, asked how much of a priority is the environmental friendliness and features of this project to your company? And it was a really interesting question because what you just said is really often our position is we're trying to solve for those needs, which are usually the needs that are expressed by the community. Not always different communities and different people within the community have different priorities. But I like to talk about sustainable development really from where that term came from, which, you know, I think is the 1997 United Nations conference, the definition of sustainable development at that point, you know, you can talk about it in so many ways is basically the ability to meet the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. Around 2000, the millennium goals, 2015, we had the sustainable development goals, which are, you know, still kind of the driving force in sustainable development today. And I really like this one like cake chart of those goals. Think like a tiered wedding cake. And those goals cover things like zero hunger, gender equality, decent work and economic growth, sustainable cities, climate action, clean energy, life below water, life on land. So it's really across the board, partnerships, justice. And this tiered cake kind of separates the goals. At the bottom layer, you know, to your point about meeting these social and economic needs first, it's a fine line because that bottom layer is really the four environmental sustainable development goals. Because without a healthy biosphere, we can't live. We can't thrive, right? We're, we're always catching up and adapting, right? I think where we're at in the world in development is a combination of mitigation and adaptation at this point. We're doing our best to not have to make that adaptation component the whole thing. You need that healthy biosphere. Then the second layer of that cake is really the social components, and that's zero hunger, gender equality, uh, good health and well-being, quality education. We have to have those components before then. The third layer is really the economic. So decent work, economic growth, sustainable cities, and all of that. And I think that's a really great way to think about how it all fits together. It doesn't always work in a linear fashion, like you said understanding the relationship between it all is really important. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. So lastly, I'd like to talk about this economic component because I feel like we've danced around it a little mm -hmm. bit, that there are entrepreneurs that will invest in the community for selfish reasons, right? For growing their business, for having a place to reach their customers. But what is that ultimate economic vision for a community that goes through revitalization? Yeah, I think number one, is if you're talking about development, you have to think about what the secondary impacts of that development will be. And I'm really talking about the risk of displacement. So that's always, I think, the, the driving force of why developers have a poor reputation a lot of the time is because they're, you know, gentrifiers and they're kicking people out of their communities. And, and we saw a lot of that heavily in Inglewood with the stadium developments that were happening. And there's a lot of concern with that in general, with the Olympics and all of that. 
So you have to think about, I'm not trying to reformat or recreate the fabric of this community. I'm trying to uplift this community. I'm not investing in a project to extract and maximize return for myself and my investors. I'm investing in a community, right? The built environment is everything that we do. It's where we live. It's where we sleep. It's where we play. Hard infrastructure is the foundation of all of it. So if you're in the development game, you have to understand the impacts that you have. And I think a lot of people do not. So you have to think, how can I take care of the community and do a service to the community rather than view this development as completely isolated from everything around it? And I think that's something that a lot of investors and developers don't think about and don't understand. Well, thank you so much. I think that's a really nice bow to wrap it up in. I really appreciate your time today. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, no, thanks so much. I feel for like having I've learned me. a lot from you. <laughs> well, this is I, awesome. I, I, I'm so passionate about this. I could talk all day long. Well, so. <laughs> welcome back anytime, please. Thank you. Thank thanks you. So much. Thank you. Yeah. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.